real issue going on is, is for Europe to figure out what is it going to do about China? You know, it's an interesting dichotomy because you, you've got the Italians rolling out the red carpet and you've got... And the Greeks too. And the Greeks and a lot of Eastern European countries. But then on the other side, you've got folks like Macron in France, who's taking a much more hawkish line saying, uh, we've got to kind of wake up and smell a coffee here and realize that China's not our friend in the long term. Well, you know, the, the, the French are interesting. They have always believed that government uh, and industry cooperation at the deepest possible level is essential, uh, uh, and they have a profound sense of the national security implications of um, economic developments. They will use every lever they've got to influence that in favor of, uh, of France. Their problem is the Chinese are just better at it. And so the French see exactly what the Chinese are doing, because it's what they do, and they, they can't do it themselves. Welcome to episode 259 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And now that Lawfare has gone to the dark side, we're one of a few uh, such podcasts that has no advertising whatsoever. So uh, send us a, a please go give us a good review just for that alone. Please remember the views expressed here. I'm I'm reminded by my uh, uh, wife and uh, children uh, to say that the views expressed here have no relationship to their views, uh, the views of clients the rest of the firm, other institutions that may be represented uh, in our uh, News Roundup uh, uh, staff uh, uh, really barely uh, represent the views we're expressing. Okay, uh, we've got for the Roundup, Maury Shank, um, who advises Steptoe on uh, European technology and security issues. Uh, Maury, welcome. Good to be here, Stuart. And uh, uh, Pete Jadel, who's an associate in Steptoe's Washington office, who does export control and economic sanctions work. Matthew Hyman, uh, uh, who's a senior fellow at the National Security Institute, formerly with the Justice Department. Uh, our favorite uh, uh, techie, Nick Weaver, senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute at UC Berkeley. Uh, welcome, Nick. Thank you. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and uh, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer and the host provocateur of today's program. Why don't we jump right in? There's a lot of stories. Uh, and uh, the first story kind of irresistibly is the transformation of Julian Assange from somebody, he went into the Ecuadorian embassy looking like somebody who kind of was an aging member of a boy band, and he comes out looking like a garden gnome. It's it's so sad that the guy managed to, to uh, incarcerate himself for seven years. It really breaks my heart. Uh, uh, Nick, Maury, uh, can you fill us in on uh, where the things stand today? Gladly. So... Thursday was a great day for schadenfreude. For off-topic, read the Avenatti indictment. It is also amazing. Yeah, so when, when, Assange, when he says he's a criminal lawyer, he, he's not kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. So with Assange, the indictment is fairly brief because what it seems to be is just hold on to this guy after the Ecuadorians got tired of him smearing feces on the wall and kicked him out. And not now, cleaning his cat's litter box, I think, was the other issue. Well, listen, uh, if you've lived with somebody who didn't do that, you know how serious that was. 
So anyway, now we're getting to the interesting question of the extradition fight. Now, there's two options, both of which were flagged by uh, Marcy Wheeler. The first is if Julian Assange just says, okie doke, then we really can't charge him with anything more. It's indict a clown, get a circus. He makes a big mess in the U.S. for a couple of years and then basically gets off with time served by the time things are done. Fortunately for the Department of Justice, Julian Assange has a persecution martyr complex and he will probably fight extradition tooth and nail. Now, he actually might even succeed at that. The UK has a long history of being very reluctant to extradite hackers, especially those that can claim some sort of mental illness, and that can slow things down a lot. Well, racist soliquitor, as they say. (laughs) And the other problem is it actually is pretty hard to charge Assange and get a conviction. So on this case... This was pretty thin, wasn't it? Basically, they said he offered to help crack a password hash. Um, Not clear he actually did. And the idea is that that was joining the conspiracy to do what uh, uh, Manning was doing, which was pretty clearly uh, acting outside of the authority that Manning had given. But that had the convenient aspect that it's not what ordinary journalists do. It's joining the conspiracy as opposed to being handed the fruits of of some conspiracy. Uh, But if you had to prove that, I think you're right. The circus would be in town. and. Worse is you really want Manning to testify, and she's basically made it clear she will not testify for any purpose for anybody. So that's going to be hard. Other possibilities are a conspiracy with Russia, but that would probably require evidence collected by the NSA, hard to deal with. Furthermore, evidence collected by the NSA against an Australian citizen makes it even more annoying. The other possibility is uh, the Schulte case, the uh, Vault 7 case, in which case you really want Schulte to testify. And right now he seems to be fighting the warrant and doing a bunch of other stuff right now. So it's questionable whether you could line up his cooperation before the extradition happens, which you need to do. Yeah, but he's going to be in jail so long that you can get his cooperation pretty soon with a buck and a half worth of Twinkies, right? Hopefully, but not necessarily. And the key is we have to have cooperation on something like that before he actually gets extradited from the UK. The final possibility that Marcy Wheeler flagged is that a lot of Assange's behavior can be classed as extortionate. So um, basically threats to Donald Trump Jr., hey, make me Australian ambassador or I will um, release more CIA stuff. The multiple insurance files where, hey, let's release a file. It's all encrypted. And if something happens, I will release the data. That sounds like extortion to me. So interesting. If if the U.S. expands the charges, though. Um, they have to let the UK pass on the new charges, uh, and if they don't, they won't be able to expand them. So 
and and if they later expand this, you know, two years from now, while he's still fighting extradition, you're sort of starting the clock over again. Although I have to say, you're right. This guy, this is a guy who has incarcerated himself for longer than he could possibly have served on the charge the U.S. government wants to extradite him for, and who will add to the that time in the UK fighting uh, extradition in a way that probably won't count as time served. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I guess I'm asking myself, what's not to like? The, the, the guy has a martyr complex. I'm happy to persecute him. Especially if, like, we do take advantage of every two years, reset the clock on extradition by <laughs> piling on a couple more charges. I think he has he has very few friends now. You know, it's impressive that the Ecuadorians gave up on him. The U.S. is after him. Australia doesn't want to help. The Swedish are thinking about reviving the rape prosecution, or at least people want to do that. Jeremy Corbyn likes him, and Donald Trump seems to have gone quiet, but very few friends. And I think, you know, he's gone kind of quiet tending his cat for seven years. He's got a, a lot of years sitting locked up now. So it's Julian Assange is not a very happy person to be, I think. No, I think when you're a narcissist, though, only you only really need one person to love you. Let's turn to a, a really good New York Times story uh, uh, from uh, the weekend uh, that I thought was fascinating, raises all kinds of interesting legal questions, privacy questions. I think it's a bogus privacy issue myself. But uh, Nick, uh, uh, this is the Sensor Vault uh, location warrant case uh, where Google is responding to very innovative warrants with some pretty interesting technology and making some law in the process. Yes. Although I do think it is a real privacy issue, but the privacy issue is with Google. So you're an NSA lawyer. Somebody comes up with the proposition. We track everybody on the planet with as much detail as possible, store that data forever because it will make our process 1% more efficient, even though we will still accomplish our mission if we don't. You'd probably be at least a little embarrassed. Yeah. But with Google, it's sure okie doke. They figure they can potentially get slightly more revenue about recording everybody's location that they can get and keeping it associated with them. And what has happened is law enforcement has finally figured out that, hey, if Google has this data, we can ask for it. And so it's warrants for all Google devices that have been seen within this area at this time or these combination of areas. So they know and there's Google's, been a crime. They know there's been a crime. They know where the crime occurred. They have no idea who committed it. They're giving a warrant to Google saying, tell us everybody who is in the neighborhood, a relatively small circle, and we will figure out which of them might be the suspect. So they don't have a suspect until Google gives them the data. Is that the, the, uh, the way this works? Yes. And Google is actually going through a lot of effort to make it as privacy sensitive as possible, say, like, give pseudonymous identifiers rather than actual identifiers until a further warrant is applied for and other things like that. And I think that's, that's pretty is, important because if if you gathered – if you said, I just want information about everybody who was in the neighborhood, you are gathering information on, let's say, 50 people and their location, knowing that probably only one of them uh, is a suspect and maybe none of them. And that does raise the question of how do you call that probable cause? Yes. And so 
there's a lot of thought that Google has put into the privacy sensitivity and how to respond to these warrants. The big problem is, is Google never put thought into the question of should we retain this data in the first place? So that's why only Google is responding to these warrants is because only Google is collecting and retaining this information associated with users effectively for as long as they as they bother. Well, one of the things that I was interested uh, about in this uh, is they're very slow to respond. It's weeks and sometimes months to get the data from Google, even that first pseudonymous uh, uh, cut. And uh, in many cases, the government is going to want that information a whole lot faster. And it may be that if they go to other people, they're going to have to be there within a week of the crime to say, we want everything you still have in the last week uh, in terms of location data, and they might be able to get it from other companies. A lot of other companies, though, don't even keep a week. What you do is you do like what Apple does, and you separate out the data from the identifier. So you might have movement data for short segments of individual phones, but you don't keep long term because you don't even really collect the data after you're done using it. I kind of agree with you I, about the, the, the privacy uh, issue here. It's not, you know, the, the idea that the police have access to this is the least privacy intrusive thing we're talking about uh, uh, here. Uh, no, you know, unless, unless you're planning the perfect murder, uh, the likelihood that your information about your location is going to be drawn to the attention of the police under your name is vanishingly small, and it will occur only after both a warrant and a satisfaction to Google that the pattern of movement that you were engaged in uh, was suspect. Now, uh, naturally, it's the New York Times, so they found one person who was uh, became a suspect because apparently his phone and his mother's car were used by the guy who carried out the crime. And not, not surprisingly, uh, uh, the cops thought maybe it was him. But most of the time, and even then, they, they, they worked it out by providing more electronic data from more of his friends who said, oh, I was with him. I, I, here are my text messages. So this is not a law enforcement problem. Uh, it does raise the question, and I think, you know, uh, the California, the CCPA, and the GDPR will raise the question, can Google just keep this on the off chance it'll be useful? And additionally, I do think that the slow delay that Google is taking so long to respond suggests that there may be basically a deliberate slow roll going on on Google's part because this is basically taken off in the past year because what happens, I think, is that law enforcement realizes something, some data source. They tell their friends their friends, and so you have this kind of exponential ramp up as now it goes from only known by one or two agencies to known by everybody. And hey, it's I Silicon think Valley. They should be happy it went viral. <laughs> And I think Google is just 
decided we want to slow roll this just simply to limit the demand. I think that's probably right. They really should be charging. If they aren't charging, they should be charging because it costs money to uh, uh, to do this. Uh, and uh, that will enable them to staff it properly. I do think there's kind of an incoherence in the, the approach Google's taking here. They said, we need a search warrant. I'm not sure how you get probable cause to say, well, what's the probable cause you're trying to get to get that warrant? I realize these people have gotten, these police departments have gotten warrants, but I wonder whether warrants are really um, appropriate in this context. It just does not feel as though you have probable cause to uh, uh, to believe that this these records are going to produce evidence of guilt in the crime. Actually, I disagree that I believe you do have probable cause to state that the response to this search will contain evidence for the crime. And to my mind, it's really no different from tower dumps. That is, hey, cell phone company, tell me all phones but attached to as, this tower at know, this time. But, uh, tower dumps are kind of teetering on the edge of being carpenterized uh, and, and maybe not produced without actual evidence of in a traditional warrant of a person that's under suspicion being potentially guilty. We'll see. Yeah. That, um, I, I, I think this, this worked better when we said, okay, you have to demonstrate that this will produce relevant evidence, which is the subpoena standard, and we're going to impose some restrictions on what is produced in order to protect privacy by saying provide it pseudonymously and give us a second read on why the pseudonymous data that you've identified is even better evidence that the pseudonymous person has committed a crime. That two-stage process is perfectly sensible. I just not, I'm not sure you can really fit it to the demand that you have a warrant for the first stage. We'll see. Okay. Cepheus. Cepheus continues to get tougher and tougher. Pete, uh, Cepheus did at least two things. One, we just found out about. Uh, uh, actually, maybe both. We just found out about it. Tell us how they're getting tougher. Yeah, so there's a there's an interesting case uh, about a U.S. company called Cofence. It's a cybersecurity company. They do uh, employee conditioning, phishing simulations, and the like. Um, and there was a, a takeover of that company about a year ago in February last year by a, uh, a group of uh, investors, including BlackRock, along with a company called Papalona Capital Management, international investment manager, um, backed by, um, among others, uh, Mikhail Friedman. Is a, uh, a Russian individual well known for uh, for being the owner of Alpha Bank, which is Russia's largest private bank. So this uh, Russian individual came in, took a minority stake in a U.S. cybersecurity company of all things, and it sounds like this transaction was not notified to Cepheus, which is starting off a bit of a red flag for the for the agency for Treasury and others. Um, yeah, because I, month, I, if there's anything you could have figured out that the U.S. government might think was a national security issue is giving the Russians insight into which companies have the worst response rate, that is to say the highest response rate to uh, phishing emails. Yeah, a lot of good data in that company, <laughs> that's for sure. And so they, yeah, right after closing, things got – it sounds like uh, things got heated pretty quickly. Um, so the deal was in closed in February of last year by August. 
Um, Pamplona, this uh, Russian-backed company, had agreed to drop its board seat in Cofence, and then CFIUS got them in October into a voluntary agreement to sell to a trustee. Um, and the recent news is that this trustee has been uh, trying to sell the stake off now to a CFIUS-approved buyer. So that's where we are. You know, what does this say about <laughs> CFIUS's views of uh, sensitivity in the cybersecurity sector? Well, um, doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that uh, you know you should be a little sensitive if you're you know, potentially allowing access to data or even just equity to a Russian investor in a company like this. And and while this um, sounds this sounds like a big new deal, it's not. Uh, when I was at DHS, uh, uh, you know, in the 2006-7, we did the same thing to somebody who had not notified a transaction and we took it uh, badly uh, and said, no, you need to sell it. And, uh, and indeed, when they didn't sell it, we said, okay, we're going to start a, a assessing fines for failure to sell, and they're going to get you know they're going to double every month, which pretty quickly creates a deep incentive uh, uh, to do that, and, and ultimately they did. Uh, so this is not new, and neither is the other story, which is that uh, apparently about a year ago, Cepheus uh, imposed a one million dollar fine on a company for failure to live up to its uh, uh, national security uh, uh, mitigation agreement uh, uh, terms. We don't have much in the way of details on that one, though, right? No. Um, and, you know, maybe looking back in the addicts of your memory on Cepheus, you can recall another example like this. But to, to, we to never me, got this, to is, a million. this is unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah. We never so got to a million dollars. I think this is new. Uh, well, this I think what's interesting and, about it is this is not designed to force a sale. This is just you are not taking this mitigation agreement seriously enough. And we need, you know, you need a dope slap to wake up. And a and million dollars seems like a pretty good uh, dope slap. Right. And I think as much as the company needed it, Cepheus needed this as they're ramping up. You know, they've got a lot of agreements. They can't monitor them all. They need a deterrent. Um, and so they decided to, to impose and then to publicize this uh, this anonymous fine. So I think that's probably, you know, could be part of what's going on here is they're trying to warn the investment community to take these agreements seriously. So the German Data Protection Agency is also in the warning business, uh, uh, warning the German cops that they can't use uh, Motorola cameras that store their uh, uh, data, even encrypted, on uh, uh, on an Amazon cloud because ooh, cloud act. Um, and Maury, does this make any sense at all? Well, it's a story that's been told for a long time. I mean, a lot of European enterprise providers have been saying, "Well, you should store our data with us because any U.S. provider will have to provide access to the U.S. government." I think it's an old story. I mean, there's some truth that the Cloud Act does allow U.S. authorities to go after the domestic entity in the U.S. and, and have it require its foreign subsidiary, a, you know, go after AWS in the U.S. and have its foreign German entity provide data to the U.S. authorities. And the, the DOJ has recently said, well, that's not the case if there's a, a Cloud Act MLAT in place, but there isn't one yet. And they're pretty, they're pretty strict uh, provisions for that. There's rumors that the, US, the U.K. will be the first country to have one. But that's still under negotiation. Yeah, uh, and you know, it's it, it. Of course, the German Data Protection Agency doesn't know anything about this because they don't know anything about much. But uh, the German cops were among the first to go to American companies and say, "You have access to this data that you store in the United States. Why don't you just give it to us?" Uh, and so, uh, and 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 DOJ has a very interesting white paper out on on um, Cloud Act 
where they point out that the Budapest Convention, which has like 70 signatories, is pretty clear that you can get access to data stored in another country if you've got jurisdiction over the company that stored it. So um, not only is the German Data Protection Authority kind of vamping on stuff that the German authorities have been doing for 20 years, it's arguably in violation of international law. I just love saying that about Europeans uh, uh, because they're uh, on such high horses about international law most of the time. But this is probably a violation of the Budapest Convention to say that we're going to restrict trade in that fashion. Well, so, okay, the, the rules are similar around the world, but this isn't really about respecting international law. It's about, you know, do you trust another country? I mean, it's like the U.S. enforcing CFIUS saying we don't, we don't trust Chinese people to be in our supply chains and so forth. This is basically the Germans saying well, we don't trust a, a U.S. company to be in our supply chain. And, and if that's, you know, it's for police purposes. And is that honestly a trust thing? Is it? Is it commercial favoritism for Deutsche Telekom, which has a sizable business in this area? Hard to say, probably a little of both. Yeah, and I, I, I guarantee you, you couldn't go to a cocktail party uh, among German officials uh, or even uh, big industrialists without this being the conventional wisdom. Uh, so it's a commercial problem for sure uh, for U.S. cloud providers, and it's probably the only commercial ray of hope that Deutsche Telekom and its uh, cloud have. Amazon and Microsoft are far in the lead with yeah. the Chinese snapping at their heels. I guess that's right. And, and Google uh, kind of uh, refusing to admit defeat. Uh, yeah, well, I, I left out Google. Google still got it. it, it but it really has not caught up with Microsoft and yeah. neither of them has caught yeah. up with the U.S. So the EU was yeah. um, spreading the uh, uh, the international law around. Has uh, uh, had another trade uh, a summit with the Chinese, um, talking about national security. And the New York Times story, at least, suggests that uh, um, they're taking another look at their relationship with uh, uh, China. Uh, Matthew, uh, what does that amount to? Well, I think it it reflects the fact that the EU and its member countries are not all completely aligned. Um, so on the EU, right, this, that's a that's a dog bites yeah. man story. <laughs> but the EU and the China summit itself, if you look at the joint statement that came out, it's pretty thin gruel. It's a lot of agreements to work on and discuss yeah. things out in the future. And but I, I but as I you know going back to the man bites dog story, um, I, I think the real issue going on is is for the for Europe to figure out what is it going to do about China? Meaning, is it going to take a more aggressive tact along the lines of the Trump administration, which they're loathe to do because to agree with Trump on anything is to not be very European? Or is it to be more accommodating the way the Italians have been, which has basically said, build your belt and road right through Rome because we'd love to have you and we desperately need the uh, financial investment. And so, I, I, you know, it's an interesting dichotomy because you, you've got the Italians rolling out the red carpet and you've got... And the Greeks, too. And the Greeks and a lot of Eastern European countries, um, whether we're talking about Huawei and ZTE and 5G. But then on the other side, you've got folks like Macron in France, who's taking a much more hawkish line saying, uh, we've got to kind of wake up and smell a coffee here and realize that China's not our friend in the long term. Well, you know, the, the, the French are interesting... They have always believed that government uh, and industry 
cooperation at the deepest possible level is essential, uh, uh, and they have a profound sense of the national security implications of um, economic developments, uh, and they they will use every lever they've got to influence that in favor of, uh, of France. Their problem is the Chinese are just better at it. Uh, they've got a bigger economy, uh, and so the French see exactly what the Chinese are doing because it's what they do, and they, they can't do it themselves. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the other problem for France, too, even though that they probably have a more realistic view of this, is that France historically is not a great teammate for other countries to work with, even when they're all on the same side. And so um, there's always this sort of uh, French ego about how things should be done, and they should certainly, in their view, be leading the way. Right. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, we've got a lot of China stories. Uh, the Pentagon, uh, uh, Mori is considering a blacklist of Chinese companies that uh, pose a threat to the supply chain. Uh, this is not exactly a, a, a surprise, is it? No, I don't think so. And, and, you know, it's a theme here of countries using, I mean, Germany, China, whoever using uh, these kind of issues to block companies from other countries, whether it's valid security concerns or not. I've been involved in investing in China and their exclusion of companies for foreign ownership is incredibly aggressive. I've seen cases where a company that's allowed merges with a company that's got some security business and the investment becomes an absolute nightmare. So, uh, yes, it's not a surprise. Yeah. I, well, there was another story the, also in the Times that I thought kind of dovetailed with this, uh, uh, essentially about what the commercial implications of the last few years have been for companies doing business in China and and having a supply chain in China. Well, I, I think the interesting thing is for international businesses, U.S. businesses operating in China, there, there have been a number of things that are start, starting to intersect at the same time. So there's the recognition that China is more adversarial and makes it difficult to do business in China. Then there's just a simple economic factor that China isn't the bargain it once was in terms of structuring your supply chain. So that's why garments aren't really made in China anymore. They're made in Vietnam. And a lot of other basic manufacturing industries are migrating out of China because when you add the rising cost of labor in China to the cost of shipping to the U.S., the bargain basement price that China once was isn't so much that anymore. And so I think it's it's certainly much easier for businesses to back off their China engagement when they can say to their shareholders, we're backing off not because the government you know, that the relations between the U.S. and China are frosty. It's because it doesn't make economic sense. Yeah, I uh, this, this is one uh, this this whole transformation of the relationship, uh, the trade relationship with China uh, is a demonstration of the rule that uh, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Uh, the Trump administration has been enormously lucky uh, uh, putting 25 percent tariffs on practically everything means that Everybody who sources from China has to ask themselves, do I really want to keep doing this? And it doesn't even matter whether they stay. Now they're just hanging over the whole supply chain. Uh, and so I, I think we're going to have a real change in um, uh, su the supply chain, the relationship, the vulnerability of the U.S. and China to, uh, to trade measures. Uh, and if the U.S. keeps pushing on supply chain, we're going to see de the development of completely independent supply chains through Vietnam and India and places like that. 
Yeah, and I think it, I think one of the upsides geopolitically for the U.S. is that is this supply chain rearrangement redounds to the benefit of U.S. allies. So you just mentioned a couple of them. It also is beneficial to a place like Mexico. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They, there's a lot of folks bringing the uh, the, the work back to North America uh, because labor isn't that big a cost of the goods uh, at the end of the day. I thought this was interesting, uh, which is a member of the House Intelligence Committee, maybe kind of speaking faster than he should have, <laughs> says that um, China is already using the stolen OPM records for intelligence collection. Uh, um, this was uh, uh, Chris Stewart uh, from, from Utah. Utah. He said that at a hearing, uh, not a, a congressional hearing. Uh, and maybe he shouldn't. He, he wouldn't elaborate on it. But uh, Bill Gertz, who uh, watches for that stuff, uh, seized on it. Uh, it's a big deal if it happened. It's a huge deal. And it's, I think it's one of those times where he, he, he said something and then he thought, oh, I've gone too far. I shouldn't have gone as far as I've gone. Yep. But I think it, you know, I think it bears out what everyone that watched has been watching the story for the last four years since we became aware of it uh, believes, which is since that that material that was stolen from OPM, and I'm sure Stuart, you were affected by it. I was affected yes. by it. A lot of people were. Um, Twenty million of us, apparently. Although I have to tell you, I I I I was re-upping my SF eighty six so that I could submit it to the Chinese again, and uh, they asked about hair color. Oh. Which, you know, I'm sensitive to because sure. I don't have hair color anymore. Uh, and what I was really struck by is it was multiple choice this time. And among the multiple choices, pink, blue, purple. <laughs> it's a new intelligence community. <laughs> More open and welcoming. But I think, the you know, what a lot of people have always said about the story is since this material never hit the, you know, the dark web in a commercial way, mm -hmm. you've got to believe a state actor was behind it. And, yeah. you know, I, as a lot of our intelligence leaders have in the past, you have to sort of tip your hat to China. They pulled off a great thing for them in terms I'm of not, stealing I'm this. I'm not prepared to tip my well, hat to them. I respect <laughs> the effort. Yes, right? they, they, and, they, and, they, and, they and And I, and I wish, what, I hope. I, I, I'm afraid it wasn't that hard. Yeah. Well, I think we made it pretty easy for them, but I'm hoping that we're doing the same and being a lot more discreet about it. Yes. Uh, last topic I want to cover. The New York Times had one more Chinese story that I thought was really interesting, which was basically that China is using artificial intelligence to find Uyghurs in crowds of Han Chinese, or at least in places where by far the most people in the crowd are going to be Han Chinese in, in the East. Uh, uh, and uh, that they've trained their AI to do a really good job of uh, uh, distinguishing between uh, Uyghurs and the Han. Well, it's an interesting story for a couple of reasons. First of all, China has the best face recognition technology in the world. Some companies like uh, Face++ and SenseTime have huge valuations. They're deploying it all over the place. This also links up from, you know, to a big topic that I discussed a few weeks ago in the interview on this podcast with James Griffiths, uh, who's both the Great Firewall of China. There's a huge change in focus. We here have heard a lot about Tibet over the years, but Uyghurs who are Muslim, are a much larger issue, I think, for the Chinese now. There are apparently potentially hundreds of thousands or even millions of them sort of in internment cities. Uh, they're worried about this as a security issue. So it's a combination of technology um, supporting the Chinese authoritarian state, as it is in other ways, like with the social credit system. 
Yeah, I you know look I, 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 the the tone of the story was oh my god it's a racist use of the uh, of artificial intelligence. I kind of wonder where have people been? China is the most race conscious country, large country on the face of the planet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've been, uh, it is Han dominated and, um, and there's been issues like this in Tibet for years. So it should be no surprise to anybody that this technology would be used this way. And, and, you know, it kind of puts in perspective all the people who are complaining that Amazon's recognition uh, system uh, doesn't do a good job of um, uh, distinguishing uh the gender of certain racial minorities, mainly African-Americans, uh, the Chinese could probably help Amazon with that. Uh, and I'm not sure the people who are complaining about it would, would appreciate the help. Thanks, Maury Shank, Pete Jadell, uh, uh, Matthew Hyman, and Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 259 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, please do send us interview guests, uh, uh, ideas for interview guests. Uh, I'm particularly interested in people who can talk to us in a thoughtful way about artificial intelligence. I'd really like to do two or three or four interviews um, on different aspects of social and legal uh, uh, questions uh, uh, there. It's obvious that the NGOs are trying to make uh, uh, face recognition uh, using artificial intelligence some kind of toxic uh, technology. Uh, and there's an effort underway to also guarantee that you can only use uh, artificial intelligence if it produces the right uh, racial, ethnic, and uh, opinion balance. Uh, and so I, I'm interested in those aspects as well as the technology. So please send me suggestions uh, for that. Uh, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow me on Twitter. Now I've two weeks in a row, despite having taxes uh, uh, to do, I've gotten out uh, some of the topics that we've covered today. Uh, please, when you uh, get a chance, Give us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, I promise I would read some of the uh, uh, reviews. Uh, uh, here's one. Uh, I like this one. So much deeper than journalists get. This podcast takes a deep look at legal and tech issues that many journalists don't understand. Uh, I'm not sure that they don't understand it. Maybe in some cases they don't want to understand it. And J.L. Stark says, yes, good depth biased commentary. Yep, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, I can't deny it. Uh, I enjoy the depth of the conversation on the law and issues, but a blatant bias combines with a failure to provide a well-rounded viewpoint from the other side, which I guarantee you, you can get from picking up any issue of the New York Times or any other uh, so-called mainstream uh, uh, media outlet. Uh, and he, he suggests that I should do a better job of seeing that law and policy aren't black and white. Uh, and he might be right. Coming up, uh, April 29, we've got blockchain taking over the podcast. Uh, uh, so you won't hear from uh, my biased view. You'll get somebody else's biased view uh, that week. Uh, uh, thanks to Christy Jorge, our producer, to Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, to Michael Beaver, our assistant editor. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, your host and chief provocateur. Please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.